From McKinsey & Company Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today's episode is taken from a presentation that Kevin Sneeder, our global managing partner, shared at the annual CFO forum we recently held in London. The conference's theme was focused on reinventing the role of the CFO and how digital and analytics are helping drive this reinvention. Kevin's remarks focused on macro disruptions and their implications for business and society. He sets the stage with a historical perspective on the pace of disruptive technological change using the SS Savannah, one of the first hybrid sailing ships that augmented wind power with a steam engine, to highlight that while change is a constant, the pace of disruptive change has risen dramatically and will continue to do so. Here's Kevin. Okay, good morning. It's lovely being back in London because uh, I grew up in Glasgow and it's always nice to see what the British summer looks like. And certainly this would be a glorious summer's day in Glasgow. So we shouldn't complain, we should be uh, enjoying life, and we should also understand there's a lot going on in the world. And my task this morning is at least to frame some of the context, give you a sense that this is a time of reinvention, not just evolution, and I'll try and substantiate why we believe that to be the case. Now, I grew up near the water, so I feel I should use the River Clyde and Scotland's shipbuilding industry to draw the analogy. But I know there's quite a few Americans in the room, so I thought I'd start with the US, the SS Savannah. It's a steamship, right? And if you look really closely, you can see there is one chimney, one little smokestack right there in the middle of the vessel. It only operated for about an hour on any given day, in fact, less than that in aggregate, when it sailed from Glasgow to New York in 1818 in about 30 days, about a month. And it was a major breakthrough. It was the first commercial steamship that could actually sail that distance, but not under steam power. 50 years later, you're obviously worried about steam, but you're not doing an awful lot because you've got plenty of opportunity to keep going. So there was no particular need to evolve, at least if you were a shipbuilder, you didn't see that disruption as being all that material. But of course, you were worried. And so you did want to make sure you could keep improving your technology in the face of disruption, so you did this. This is the German response, the Prussian, 1902. Remember, the Savannah was in 1818. But again, why worry? Because the Prussian could cross the Atlantic in about 26 days, so it shaved quite a bit of time off, another 10% off. It was competitive. But there was one problem, one quite significant problem, and it was this. SS Grampian, built on the Clyde in 1907, because the SS Grampian did commercialize the technology. It could run under steam power. It did transform transatlantic shipping, and it could cross the Atlantic in somewhere between 20 and 22 days, carrying a full cargo, not just of coal, but actually of goods. But if you're a shipbuilder, you're not prepared to give up just yet on the age of sail. You do this. This is the Thomas W. Larson, also built in 1907. The finest of the sailboats. Really quite a magnificent vessel. It too had a problem, quite a major problem actually with hindsight, which is it was very hard to steer. And so on December the 13th, 1907, the Thomas Larson foundered near the Isles of Scilly and lost all hands except for the captain, George Dow. And that was the end of the sailship. What's intriguing, of course, is that this all took place between 1818 and 1907. The disruption was there. Actually, it was quite revolutionary. It just took a long time. Our challenge is we have a very different pace and scale of change, but we don't want to go building sailboats in the age of steam. 
And so what I want to do is frame the context in terms of a series of disruptions that are taking place and then talk more specifically about the technology revolution since digital analytics is part of our theme and how that is playing out and what it's doing to the world in which we live. But I thought by reminding ourselves of the bigger context where we get to digital analytics, we have two world powers. We have the rising world power in the form of China, which most analysts expect to be as big as or bigger than the US economy by 2030 in absolute terms, not relative terms. And we have the established power, of course, in the face of the United States. We have the European Union and everyone else. And everyone else is trying to figure out what's this world order going to look like. And books have been written about this. Secondly, let's not forget, all of you are dealing with companies that are facing great change in the form of the consumer. But I'm going to argue much of that change is actually a bit like the sailboat. The wonderful thing about demographics is you can see it coming. It should not be a surprise that we're in a world where the millennials this year will outnumber the boomers. I can see quite a few boomers in this room. I do not see very many millennials. No offense. Maybe there are a few and I just can't tell. There was at least one on the stage last night and that millennial spoke a slightly different language to the rest of us. And this is the reality of the world this year. This year there will be more millennials than boomers in the United States. The world as a whole will see some very interesting changes. There will be more people over 65 in China than there are citizens of the United States within the next 10 years, about 400 million over the age of 65. That's greater than the population of the United States. Think about that. and Think about China in that context. Again, the great thing about demographics is you can see it coming, and I'm sure you've all seen it coming and are thinking accordingly, but this is part of the disruption that we see. The environment. I know there is much debate about the environment. I am going to assert that that debate is one that is interesting, but what's more important is what the rising cost of environmental damage is doing to the economics of business around the world. If you are on the west coast of the United States, you are feeling the pain of rising insurance premiums if you're a business, because those insurance premiums are rising because we know there will be wildfires, and we know that there'll be twice as many wildfires this year as there was three years ago. So the environment has moved from being something we of course care about citizens of this planet. But as business leaders, it's now a cost of doing business that is being seen right around the world, whether it's cost of energy supplies, if you're in a country that's chosen to deviate from using nuclear versus coal, or indeed it is in the cost of insurance premium if you're de dealing with catastrophic events. Fourth change, populism. You can dialogue around why is this happening, what's the rise of populism mean? One of the most interesting reports I think McKinsey has published was called Poorer Than Their Parents. I had one striking statistic. I had many, but I had one that really caught the eye. A simple statistic. It said that between 1995 and 2005, if you looked at the OECD and you looked at the disposable income of households in the OECD, then 98% of those households saw incomes go up. Only 2% saw incomes go down. So 98% up. 2% down. That's a pretty good number. The same statistic, fast forward 10 years, 2005 onwards, looks a bit different. That number, that 98% going up, became 30%. But that means that the 2% going down became 70%. So we went from 2% of households seeing incomes down to 70% of households. Incidentally, that number was even larger in the United States and a lot smaller in Sweden. And so the reality is, poorer than their parents. Part of the world in which we live 
is premised on tomorrow will be better than today. For a lot of households, tomorrow has not been better than today. That is a big disruption. Again, we could spend all day talking about why, wherefore, are you sure about that number? Are there other numbers that point in the other direction? Brackets, no. But let's at least note that that is the fourth disruption. The fifth is the one we're going to talk about, and it's a revolution. Interestingly, it's a revolution not in terms of new technology. We often talk as if all this technology is new. It's a revolution in terms of the way in which that technology combines. The connectivity is far more important than the individual technologies themselves. But those technologies are creating real change. And they're doing so in a way similar to the change we saw in the eras of various industrial revolutions. Whether it was the first industrial revolution, which none of us can remember, steam power to modern production, turn of the last century. Importantly, between that revolution and the electric power revolution, something big happened, which is a transition. And again, if we were here in a different context, I would be arguing that the future is very bright in terms of there will be more jobs created than lost when we get all the way to the fourth industrial revolution. The problem is what happens in between. And what happened in between those two revolutions was war. There were many other things that went on. But conflict, real disruption as people start to fear for their futures. What happens to my job? I can see that there's going to be more jobs, but what are you going to do for me? And this is part of the environment in which we live. Machines to uh, modern production methods to automated production, that one went peacefully. But there's no guarantee all this disruption against those four other disruptions I talked about. You can see why the world is a tense place. Just one side note, which I often state because people ask me, what is happening in the world in terms of how different countries see this? I was with one Chinese bureaucrat who reminded me, if you look at each of the three revolutions before we get to the current one, China lost every single one of those revolutions, and they know that. And so the one sentence which rang in my head was when he said to me, don't forget, we're not going to lose this one. And I think, again, that talks to the world in which we live. Four industrial revolutions, together a series of disruptions that I think add up to fundamental change. So today, we're going to be talking about technology, digital analytics. It's one of the technologies that is playing a material role and changing the role of the CFO to the point at which we argue for reinvention rather than adaptation. Uh, there are many different technology shifts. Let me just jog through them briefly and size them because I think it's important. The digitization, which is why we're going to be spending much of our time on that, is arguably the largest in economic value. Who knows what the real value is? We put a number of $10 trillion. There's a whole McKinsey Global Institute report behind that number, but it's a big number and it's a fundamental number. Automation and robotics could be bigger. Much of that change is happening in parts far away from this country, sadly. Um, it's the automation of production that's really driving fundamental change. You can see about a quarter of the world's robots in Shenzhen, China. IoT, this is part of the joining up of existing technologies. Slightly lesser number, but still hugely important. Quantum computing, vast opportunity to really crack the code on, let's say, cancer and many of the other ills that have plagued society. Could be worth an awful lot still to come. Let's see where it ends up. But for all of this, and this is the subject of today, the one that's priceless, to use the advertising term, is the impact on people, culture, and jobs. And this is where you come in. And this is what we will largely talk about this morning. And gosh, there's lots of change, but just remember this when you're sat in front of a spreadsheet wondering how to invest. It will never be this slow again. The pace of change will never be this slow again. That's the world in which we live. 
pace is going to get faster, not slower. So as you contemplate what's happening, just remember that thought. And that's why we argue that it's time to reinvent. Now, we've done lots of surveys. We actually repeat these surveys every couple of years. Um, but before we do that, it's worth remembering what happened in the SNP, which is the average tenure has gone from 67 years to 15 years, and it keeps going down. So just because you're successful today is no guarantor of success in the future. Companies risk being disrupted themselves, let alone individuals within companies. So what's it take to reinvent? And who are the reinventors? Well, these are some of the characteristics. These are companies that choose to invest more in digital. They're more likely to be using some of the technology in their core business model rather than demonstration projects off to the side. One of the great places to say you've joined the digital arms race is to point to a division that's off in the corner doing something really interesting rather than the heart of the business. Reinvention is about the heart of the business. And that's why they're two and a half times more likely to have done something fundamental to the core operations of the company. That's what reinvention means. This is also true. Not for the faint-hearted. We simply have surveyed 2012, 2014, 2016, 2018, and we asked people in our global survey of respondents, we simply said, have your digital investments improved performance? Yes, no. How do you feel about them? Unfortunately, a lot of people say no, and that, in a way, is part of the conversation I'm sure we'll have in our breakouts. For all that I can paint this happy picture of reinvention, there's an awful lot of money getting spent and invested, and it's not yet paying back. So I recognize that challenge, and I want to come to that at the end of my talk. I'll also, though, before then, talk about what I think improves the odds of success. And I think this is where I would ask you to reflect on where you are as leaders and how you feel. And I'll talk through five actions. First and foremost, the leadership that understands what's going on, which I guess is why you're all here today. Secondly, an ability to reskill and upskill the labor force. Labor forces now are taking on very many different tasks. I work in consumer goods and retail in particular, and obviously the proposition in retail in terms of what people on the shop floor do today is dramatically different than what they did five years ago. And in that context, how you reskill and upskill becomes part of the conversation. How you take your digital operations or your daily operations and truly digitize them. The second to last, how you work together in ways that are very different than the ways leadership teams work today. I think the evolution of the way we work is as important as what we actually do. And last, but by no means least for leaders, is to communicate a vision in the face of lots of data that will come in that say, just keep adding a few more sales to the ship. That's all we need to do. We don't really need to reinvent a few more sales, and we'll make that turn nicely. So five practices. Let's quickly jog through those with a few examples. And I've tried to borrow examples from the world of the CFO. DBS, the bank in Singapore that many of you may know, but which I think is widely seen as a leader in the incumbent banking space. And I thought what was interesting there was they actually went out of their way to develop a new way of evaluating what success looks like, and they put some metrics in to try and understand the return they were getting on their digital investments with an eye to optimizing that return over time. You can see they've been able to drop an effective business plan to drive digital behavior among customers. DBS has, I think, managed to make the transition with some pretty savvy leadership along the way. Reskilling and upskilling. Why this is complicated? Because if you're just doing the ROI, it depends where in the world you are because clearly labor laws will come into play. But as one CEO put it to me, in a country with relatively loose labor laws, it's easier to take out 
the 40-something workforce and just go hire the 20-something workforce because they're more adaptable, they're more likely to be savvy. The problem is many labor laws will stop you doing that. And even if you did do that, the disruption in terms of expertise and experience, I'm not so sure the math works. So how you reskill becomes a big part of this conversation. And we're certainly seeing that in the work that we do. We see some companies who've made this move. I'm going to give two examples on that. One is from Tata Steel, where they used advanced analytics to really take an existing manufacturing facility in Holland and transform its production levels by applying data tools to really understand and monitor the processes in ways they were not able to do before. And they did that by training their workforce to use that information. The information had been available, but actually the ability of the workforce to make use of it was the obstacle. So they created the Advanced Analytics Academy within Tata, and that academy has been the place where employees have been reskilled to make the most of the digital tools and capabilities that are now available. The results have been quite impressive. Another example, and I think the difference between success and failure, this one is, um, gives you some sense of the scale of change. And we looked at Johnson & Johnson and one of their medical device plants in Ireland. And that medical device facility, where they literally created a series of mobile techniques to monitor plant production times, you can see very significant improvements in efficiency and done through taking and applying readily available technology, but really bringing the labor force along. And that's what's in common between what Tata did and what Johnson & Johnson did. Why does that matter? Because bringing the labor force along is part of culture change, which I think is perhaps the hardest part of this conversation. Because if you look at what the real barriers are to meeting the kind of digital goals that companies set, lack of understanding of trends, lack of talent, lack of infrastructure, lack of internal alignment, business process, lack of senior support. This is what we got when we surveyed and talked to senior executives. Interestingly, when we really step back though, the number one barrier, and maybe this is a catch-all, but culture and behavior. Culture and behavior, what goes into the culture? Why would that be? And I think it's some of the series of behaviors I talked about, the availability of information maybe being part of it, but nevertheless, the way the established way of doing things mitigates against change, gets in the way of reinvention. How do you work in new ways in the face of all of that? Well, again, I've gone to Asia to look at a couple of examples. One example is Hire, or formerly known as GE Appliances. I'm sure many of you have a GE Appliance under some form in your house. And GE Appliances uh, was bought by Hire in 2016. Actually, it was a poorly performing subsidiary at the time. And what's interesting is the way that hire is organized is not the traditional lines and simplicity that we all come to know and love. They take their 80,000 person workforce and they have about 2,000 units, each of which has a P&L. Each of the 2,000 units has a P&L. And they're organized around individual products instead of traditional functions. So the product has everything within it that is needed to succeed. They do have some shared services. And what's interesting is they took over a business that was in either flat or declining performance. And higher today, or last year, grew about 13% in its white goods business, which is quite remarkable given what's going on in that industry. And they've really done that in part through some of the technology innovations. They've got connected dishwashers, all sorts of interesting equipment they brought out. But they would argue part of it is this structural change created just freed up a lot of energy and allowed the business to operate much more effectively than it did under prior ownership. Pretty significant step change in performance.
Lastly, all of us, all of you, have a role to play in communicating change. And I think it's very easy for me to assert that, but it is important to understand that one of the things, and we disaggregate what makes for success in the context I've just described, in that environment of real and radical change, it sort of does matter what you communicate. So have you got a compelling change story? CEOs who do seem to have a lot more success. Obviously, we've made judgments as to what a compelling story looks like, but the change is quite significant. Provided it's aligned to tangible signs of activity on the part of senior leaders, fine to say something that's even more important to align, that there is communication that's transparent about what change will happen and when it will happen, and that the information really can be understood and absorbed. But the power of effective communication cannot be underestimated. And I wanted to use as an example of this pizza, since I know it's something we all know and love. And I know you all love Domino's pizza. I thought some of the reviews were a little harsh. Domino's tastes like cardboard. Microwave pizza is far superior. That was the environment in which they embarked on change. But the CEO who came in and led that business, Patrick Daw, between about 2010 and 2018, obviously set around upgrading the product. But what's really interesting is they became effectively leaders in the space of some of what they were doing on the digital side. And part of what they sought to do was upgrade the product, but also upgrade the way in which the product was accessed and the extent to which employees could be digitally trained. That's been one of the highest and best performing stocks in the US. It has a significant chunk of enterprise value that's been created, about $11.5 billion. And importantly, they've actually got to a place where two thirds of their sales are digitally enabled. So a very different business than it was in the age of cardboard. A few things to therefore think about as the day proceeds. One, who are the digitally savvy leaders that you've got in your organization? Is that you or is it somebody else? Two, how do you make sure that you do make the long-term investments? It will be very tempting to just keep adding sales to the ship. But when do you need to actually take the engine out and replace it? That's the real question. How do you therefore incorporate the tools that allow you to do things at scale? I touched on some of the manufacturing facilities of J&J and Tata Steel where they had done that. What does that do for your budgeting approaches? Are they going to be flexible enough? Are they going to withstand the kind of changes? Would you ever do a hire and have that many P&L units within your entity? And lastly, how are you communicating? What's the role that you're playing vis-a-vis -vis the CEO and the rest of the executive leadership team to communicate some of what's going on? So if I had one quote I would close with, which is that we can always look back and say, look, everything you said that would happen in the next two years, it didn't happen because we tend to overstate what will happen in the next couple of years. But if you look back on what's happened in the last decade, the scale of change has been dramatic, which is why I think Mr. Gates was right when he said we tend to overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years, and I would add dramatically underestimate the scale of what will happen in the next decade. I don't know if we've got a decade. I think I feel a lot more confident now in saying that given the pace of change will never be this slow again, that the next five years will be the replacement for the 10 years, and that rather than two years, maybe it's 18 months. But the direction of travel is clear. And of course, the art of success for any CFO is how do you weigh that all up and translate it into the investments and the other decisions that need to be made if you're going to reinvent and win in this era of disruption. Thank you. At the end of the session, Kevin responded to several questions from attendees. The first question was about China and its demographics, particularly its aging population. 
Uh, there is so much bound up in demographics everywhere, but particularly in China. One aspect of it is the Chinese working population. The flip side of this 400 million people over 65 is, of course, that there are therefore less people in the working population. Because if you're China, your one-child policy is coming home to roost. And although they relaxed the one-child policy some time ago, they're still only having one child. They've actually been unable to increase the demographics. I work with a company that makes baby products. And when the news came that they were relaxing restrictions on the benefits associated with having a second child, my client got hugely excited, shipped tons of product in, and it's still in the warehouse because they haven't actually started to have more kids. The implication of all of that is the Chinese working population over the next 10 to 15 years will go into the reverse. It will start to decline. But here's the thing. China is automating faster than the rest of the world. So if you contrast China with India, every month in India, one million new people enter the workforce. One million. India has to find jobs for one million new people every month or risk social unrest and all that goes with it. I really hope India can find those jobs. China has the opposite. They will see their workforce decline and actually materially decline by between about 10 and 15 percent as of 2035, at the same time as the world is automating. So some would say you either get rich or you get lucky, or in China you get both. Their policy is actually going to play out at a time when they actually may need less labor and they're shifting rapidly away from labor-based competitiveness. So from an economic perspective, they might just pull it off in terms of the demographics of their labor force and how that plays through. Of course, for the West, we've long had labor forces that are stable or declining. It's one of the reasons that labor costs in China are going up dramatically and outpacing the rate of growth in the economy is because of this shortage of labor that's really beginning to bite. That's one consequence. I think what's actually more interesting is attitudinally if you think about the leadership of China today, they literally were working in the fields during the Cultural Revolution. As you all know, President Xi was sent to the fields with his family. And they remember that. They remember that. And it's, it's deep. It's in the psyche. They don't want to go back to that. It explains some of their behavior. They also, though, remember tales of, from their ancestors of when China ruled the world. It's part of this notion of we're not going to lose this Cultural Revolution. It explains, I think some of the bravado you sometimes see in the way in which the leadership behaves. If you are, by contrast, somebody who is the age of many of us in this room in the 40s and 50s, you weren't in the fields, but your parents were. And so you save for a rainy day. You remember and you behave accordingly. And it's one of the reasons that the savings rate in China just will not budge. And anyone know what the savings rate in the US is? Five, six, seven percent savings rate in China? Anyone got a number? 30? Nope. Anyone else? Nope. Not 50. Anyone else? Two? Nope. How about 67%? They save 67 cents on every dollar. Staggering number. It's why when we talk about Chinese debt, we should remember we're not talking about personal debt. We're certainly not talking about mortgages. They don't do that. We're talking about institutional debt, corporations, SOEs, actually. How that will change is very intriguing because it's not going to change around my generation. I mean, literally, my colleagues, my partners in our China office, when I chat to them about their childhood, they remember not having meat. They remember how the treat was to you know, go and buy a sort of piece of fat. They remember all of that. They're not going to change. The real issue is, what's the next generation going to do? 
How's that going to change China? Will that attitudinally be very different? Is that what's going to bring about what I think many people thought would happen, which is how can you possibly continue to centrally control this country? Impossible. 1.4 billion people. Why would they put up with that? And attitudinally, why are they accepting it? And maybe that's part of this whole transition that could occur as the 18 to 30-year-old generation becomes the numerical majority. But it's going to take a long time. So there are lots of consequences around the demographics from a very practical in terms of the economy and the growth rate. Much more interesting, what's going to happen to behavior and attitudes? And that, we just don't know. That group is certainly spending more. It seems less likely to save. It travels more. So it could be that we see very different attitudinal changes coming through, but that's a guess. Kevin was then asked what his biggest worry was in terms of the societal impact of the disruptions that he had discussed. Well, growing up in Glasgow, you learn to be an optimist. Okay, that was a joke. Well, the biggest worry is, is what I touched on, and I passionately believe, and we've done lots of work to show this, there will be a lot of jobs created in this industrial revolution. A lot of jobs created. And actually, publishing is a good example. If you think about the publishing industry, it's been wiped out in the sense of the traditional publishers, the print media and so on, have had a nightmare. On the other hand, there's an awful lot more publishing taking place. A lot of people are making income from it. Net, net, it's been great. The issue isn't the future. The issue is the path to that future, the disruption that will take place. And I do worry greatly about the dislocation that's occurring for 40-somethings, because they are the group that are really going to bear the brunt of this change. Because they're the ones, the economics of reskilling look very questionable. And frankly, it's questionable because people think it's harder to reskill somebody who hits that age, and it's just not worth it. They're not that flexible. They like their old ways of working. And when society's had that problem occur, nasty things happen. That group is very noisy very influential. That's the decision-making group in many ways. And there's very real consequence because that group has the power to actually do things. And over time in the past, a lot of these transitions have not gone so smoothly. I'm not saying they've led to the First World War because there were many things that came together, but it certainly was a factor. And the unemployment rates and depression in the 30s certainly didn't help the stability of the world at that time. So we are entering very choppy water and you can see that in the type of leaders and the way in which the rhetoric is getting amped up and the appeals to, to the sort of instincts of a group that's feeling under threat. Because they know, survey after survey, that's the group that knows it's vulnerable. And it is vulnerable. And so that's my biggest worry. As a business leader, my worry, if I take it right down to the corporate level, is I see an awful lot of sales being added to ships. A lot of people just keep improving what they've got. Or they do a demonstration project off to the side, but they don't really go and look at the core processes of the business and think really hard about how the supply chain is going to have to operate differently in a world that's geopolitically divided, technology enabled, and sourcing products starts to become possible in very different ways. I worry a lot about that as a business leader. Are we doing enough to make the transition or are we just adding a few more sales to the ship? And at some point the ship will not turn because the core of the business is the issue, not the challenger. Interesting thought. So I worry, as a business leader, I worry a lot about that. I want to be optimistic. Can I just give the optimistic other side of the tracks for one minute? Read Hans Rosling's book. I didn't cover it, but the reality is more people out of poverty in the world. 1.2 billion people lifted out of poverty, largely in India, largely in China. 
but actually in other parts of the world as well. Less people dying through armed conflict than in the history of the humankind, for all that I said about the disruptions that are taking place. Lives being lived longer everywhere. Everywhere. That's a huge step forward. So there's also grounds for optimism. The final question was related to the impact of environmental change on business. Kevin was asked for his thoughts also on what businesses can do to help address sustainability and climate change. The reason I talked about the cost is because I think a lot of what we've talked about in the various aspects of the environmental dialogue have been about the damage to the planet in a very theoretical way. You know, is it one and a half degrees or two degrees at which global warming really takes on a whole new characteristic and we should worry even more deeply than we should worry about already? And it's been a very sort of high-level dialogue around nuclear power, yes, no, how do we think about the way in which we operate? But actually now, I think you can start to quantify at very practical levels the cost of what's going on. We did some work a decade ago on carbon cost curves which was good theoretical work and I think served the politicians because it talked about the cost of, at a very high level, to an economy of making the transitions and therefore who should do what and when. But it didn't land the point at the level of individual businesses. What we're about to publish is we're going to show why individual businesses are already experiencing their cost basis change and why that cost is now going to become a very real part of their business economics. And so even if you no longer accept the high-level call to action, you've now got a very important and tangible cost in your operating decisions. We're also going to argue, and I think this is where we'll get back into the sort of land of high politics or high debate, that capitalism, our system, was premised on a stable environment. If you go back thousands of years and you think about migration, migration happened in the past because of climate change. People started moving around. Well, imagine what's going to happen to the world as temperatures start rising. Already in parts of India, you get temperatures at 40 degrees plus. How do you do business or live a life in those kind of environments? Now, people have for a long time, but the temperatures keep going up. And you can start to see migration already occurring in Africa due to water shortages, some of the challenges in southern Europe. What if that became the norm? And our capitalist system, which is all about stability of economic freedoms, but then suddenly has labor forces moving all over the place, the world looks very, very different. So we're also going to make the high argument. But what I'm actually much more interested in is I think for the first time we're really going to tangibly show the cost of the impact of water shortages, the cost of the impact of forest fires and other forms of environmental disaster, plus, of course, all the usual stuff around plastics and so on. So it's a very different economic argument. I think it is cost-based, and I think it's an attempt to try and shift the dialogues that we now realize we're already facing the cost of what's going on, and therefore business has to do more, even if it's just on the basis of self-interest rather than thinking about the global effect. Well, that was on a happy note, wasn't it? I think I played up to my national heritage, but thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. A transcript of this podcast will be posted on our practice page on mckinsey.com, where you can also find links to previous episodes. If you'd like to receive future updates featuring our latest insights, you can follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance, or sign up for our email alerts on our practice page on mckinsey.com. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.